0: Hello H listeners, I am back, and today I have a real doozy for you. If you've been itching for another cult story, well, buckle up. Because while it's not the whole Krugersdorp, aka Devil's Dorp saga, this one is also pretty far out there, with arguably more unknowns and the court cases still playing out to this day we're going to the eastern Cape town of Ngobo and back to 2018 to delve into the bizarre story of the Mankoba Seven Angels Ministry, which includes doomsday cult, family feuds, and not one but two Wild West-style shootouts with police. Just a quick word on names for clarity, I'm going to be talking about Ngobo, the town, and Mankoba the family behind the church slash cult. But before we get into it, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine, or better yet, I'm going to let her introduce herself.
1: Cool, so I'll start. So my name is Melissa, I am from Englavo. I was born and bred there. So I grew up in Englavo and lived there until I was 14 years old. Um uh, is a very small town in on the R sixty one between Ofimbaba or Queenstown and Umtata. So if you are on your way to Queenstown or if you are on your way to Umtata, Ingoba is a small town that you will pass one street, <laughs> there might be like two streets behind <laughs> or so, and lots of gravel road. But um, it's very small, but it's, very si- it's a significant town because, I mean, Walter Sisulu is from Ingobo. Um Clarkbury High School, where Mandela and Sisulu went, is in Ngovo. Um, Evelyn Massey is from Ngovo. But it's a very poor town as well, you know, because I think it's one of those old towns in the Trans where there wasn't really a lot of economic activity happened, happening. So if you look at places like Butterworth or Queenstown, there were farms, there were firms, um, people, there was a lot of economic activity happening. But in then there's just been like a lot of farming. People were farming, agriculture, planting their gardens. And therefore, that's why there isn't a lot of economic activity happening even right now. It's a beautiful town, beautiful rolling hills, valleys, mountains. Um, apparently there's some rock art as well. But the, the the town itself is not in the best of conditions. And I always joke to people that Ngobo has looked the same since I was a kid. There's like literally no high-rise building. There's nothing new that has happened in the last 30 years that I can see. You go back every year, don't you? Because you've got family there. I go back here yeah, every year because of my family. And I sometimes go in March as well for Easter and sometimes in September or whenever there's something that's happening at home. So I do go like miss twice or three times a year. Okay. So
0: I know the sound there isn't fantastic. We muddle through with the Zoom that we have. But I think we can make it out. If you did struggle to hear that, the summary is that this is me chatting to Meliswa Situele. Who grew up in Ngobo. Millie and I worked together in Johannesburg years ago. These days that company that we work for is a massive communications firm and local success story, but back then we were about eight of us working out of a converted house adjacent to the business owner's home, and it was the kind of small office where your co-workers become your friends. I remember Millie talking so fondly of her hometown, This little one or two road village in the Eastern Cape. And I come from a place like that too. Well, my mum lives in a village in the Eastern Cape that I've always thought of as home, even though I grew up in the town next door to that. Anyway, I'm getting off the point. Millie spoke about her hometown, this place of beauty, but also immense poverty and need. Millie and I both left that company eventually and I went into journalism and she climbed the ropes in communications and social media, and is today a bit of a rising star within a major blue-chip company. We stayed friends, though, engaging mostly via social media, and when I started planning the story that I'm about to tell you, she immediately sprang to mind. In that clip, Meliswa tells us about the history of her town, and also the lack of economic development in Nkobo, how it's stayed virtually the same since she was little. She also speaks about how beautiful the surrounding area is, how close the community is. But there is another side to Nkobo. In fact, sadly, it's earned a bit of a reputation as a dangerous place. That's something that I asked Millie about too in our chat. It's got bad crime statistics. And
1: I don't know why and I don't know how. I suppose maybe it's a poverty thing, maybe people are despondent, maybe the young people don't have anything to do. Because like I said, it's a small town, but there are lots of people in the villages that are around it. And I think it goes back to when we were children. Because Engobo, it's got a constant name called Engobo, which is Engobo, the place of thieves. So I always ask my grand, like, who, I even said to her, who was the first thief in Anglobo? Like, who gave us such a bad friend? And no one knows. But I think back then it was the, the, the people were stealing cattle, they were stealing sheep, they were stealing cars and whatnot when we were growing up. So we've had that rap for mm. the longest time. And I think that now the crime stats are just keep, keep, keep continuing and continuing because people are just like, ah, we're in this place, we don't have much to do, let's just steal. So that's the bad rap that we have, which is rather unfortunate. Even, I mean, I'm from there as well, but you won't find me wandering in town at night because I'm scared. Um, even in my own village, my grandmother would be like, ah, you can't just go out at night because now it's scary because of the crime. But definitely during the day, it's a safe place. It's a safe place. It's a nice place to be and people are friendly. But the crime makes it super scary.
0: The fact is that the murder rate in the area is double the already high national average. To put a figure to that, between 2008 and 2018, an average of 73 people were killed in the tiny village of Entgobo every year. Suffice it to say that even by South African standards, violent crime rates in the area are high. And while I'd never want to say that people are used to it, it's a fact of life, well, we can say that the people of Nkobo have definitely seen some shit. That said, there's really nothing that could have prepared anyone for the events that took place on the 21st of February 2018, which is where this episode focuses. When I first reached out to Millie and asked her to chat to me about Nkobo, She said she wanted to be sure that I understood she wasn't an expert in this case. And I assured her that that wasn't what I was looking for, just local insight, which she does have in spades. She also has something else. Memories of encountering the group that I mentioned earlier, the Mantgoba Seven Angels Church, and hearing rumors about the seven brothers at the core of the group. Yes, seven brothers, seven angels, you see where they are going with this. They were a local oddity at first, an insular group who kept to themselves and mostly stayed under the radar, until one day the residents woke up to find their beautiful mountain had literally been used as a canvas by the church to prophesy and proselytize. Here's Millie again.
1: When we were growing up, the money church has always been around, right? But they didn't have a base. They didn't have a base. Um and when we were growing up in my area, they used to come and they would pitch a tent in one of the families there and they'd have church. And I think I must have been like eleven or twelve. But I always remember how none of the people that went to that church went to school. So we would always go, we'd all go to school and nobody went to school from that church. And always ask, you know, why don't you guys go to school if we ever got a chance to talk to them? We're like, no, Jesus didn't go to school, whatever, we are not supposed to go to school. So they would go and pitch a tent in this family home and that was that. And I think when I was about fourteen, so I left England at fourteen to go live in East London and I, I think they also left. And then they came back like a couple of years ago. And I heard that they were now, you know, they had this house there by the mountain and they were living there. But like no one who's closely surrounded to me would go to that church. So I don't even know if members of that congregation were people from any or were they people that had just followed that cult. And, you know, it it was always like this hush-hush vibe about people that live in, that go to that church, that live there, that take their provident funds and they cash their pensions and they go give them to these people but there's never been like a face to say Kate goes to this church and I know Kate well in my instance in any case but then mm-hmm. I think the uproar kind of happened when they now wrote this big ass sign on the mountain and that mountain is visible from my house I think if you see the pictures I post on social media I can see that mountain from home and literally one morning my grandkids they woke up and there was a sign by the mountain and I think they went and they protested in town a bit but It seemed that these boys um, were quite connected so nothing would ever really happen around you know getting the church shut down until that big um bust that happened so that's as far and as much as i know about about um that stuff and it just seems that they were quite connected Mm. with um the law enforcers
0: Mm. the words written on the mountain face appeared in three groups The middle group is just sort of nonsensical exclamations, reading Jehovah, God, and Angel Forces. Close to that, on the right-hand side, there is a closer bit which translates to The Word of the Lord is Everlasting. A little further apart, to the left, if you're facing the mountain, and I will try to find an image of this to put on social media, but to the left it reads the end of one thousand two hundred and sixty days it's a new beginning. one thousand two hundred and sixty days is a reference to the Bible, specifically two passages in revelation first revelation eleven twelve to uh, sorry eleven two to three says the Gentiles will trample on the holy city for forty-two months, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for one thousand two hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth and then revelation 12:6 says the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by god where she might have been taken care of for 1260 days we don't exactly know what was meant by the third bit of graffiti i personally read it as a longer version of the end is nigh with hindsight It's definitely a harbinger. But for now, it's just an eyesore for the locals. Another reason to be suspicious of the growing group who have set up a compound at the foot of the mountain. If we zoom in on Mankoba Seven Angels Ministry, past the compound's wire fence, there are several buildings, including corrugated iron shacks, housing for the church's many members. A number of luxury cars are parked inside, but aside from a handful of members, the majority of people living there never set foot off the premises. It's certainly clear to the community of the area that there are some dodgy and perhaps even dangerous things going on within. but despite raising their concerns at various points, the authorities seem to have done very little to address them. Put a pin in that, because I'm going to come back to it later. The graffiti, scrawled meters high across this landmark, may have been the Seven Angels' first brush with national notoriety, but it isn't anything compared to what was to come. This is It Happened Here, Season 2, Episode 2, and I can tell you for free that my original working title of this episode was Profit for Profit until I realized that that wordplay sadly only works on paper. So, this episode is entitled Angels, Demons and Thieves The Mancoba Seven Angels Massacre It's February 21st, 2018 and just after midnight when three vehicles pull up outside the Inkobo police station. One of them is a police van, but the gunmen that climbs out are anything but police. They head into the station, and within seconds, gunfire shatters the quiet calm of a small village police station in the middle of the night. In the initial volley, two police officers are shot, another is forced, along with two colleagues, to open the police station's gun safe. There, the intruders help themselves to multiple weapons. Two shotguns, a rifle, various pistols, around ten in total. While this is going on, there are gunshots ringing from outside the station as well. By the time the attackers march the officers outside, one of the police vans is already smeared with the blood of their colleagues. The hostages are taken at gunpoint and locked into the back of the vehicle. A little further down the street, another man, a former soldier from the South African National Defence Force, hears the gunshots and bravely runs towards the station. His selfless actions, however, are to no avail, as he is gunned down by the assailants as they make their escape, hostages and stolen guns in hand. At the same time as this is all going on, a nearby ATM is being bombed. Now I must tell you that there are two wildly different versions of this ATM story and I haven't been able to establish which one is true. Some media reports say that the same group went from the police station to the ATM while others say that this happened simultaneously and that the attack on the station was a distraction or cover for the ATM bombing. The majority of reports suggest the latter But I want to be clear that there is still quite a lot of confusion about it. Either way, as the new day dawned on Nkobo, six people have been fatally shot four around the station, including our army man and two other officers, the drivers of the police van that the gunmen had pulled up in. On this point, too, there is some uncertainty. Some news sources report that two police officers were taken from the station in a police van, had their hands tied behind their heads, and then were shot, execution style, outside the high school. Others report testimony from one of the gunmen where he states that they first hijacked a police car on patrol and then headed to the station, having murdered the occupants. And yes, that is a bit of a spoiler. I said testimony because some of the perpetrators were caught really quickly after these events took place. But that shouldn't come as too much of a surprise, right? Chances are, if you shoot up a police station, the police are going to be looking for you with a vengeance. In fact, the police chief at the time declared to media that they would have had the suspects in hand within 72 hours. In actuality, it was just 65 a mere two and a half days later that the police managed to track down the supposed killers after a tip-off that they were hiding out at the Seven Angels church compound. Now, just to go on a brief tangent here, if you've listened to some of my previous episodes, you'll be aware that 65 hours is a flat-out record time for the South African police to turn anything around let alone a multiple murder case. But clearly, there's some additional incentive in here. The, mo- the police mobilise a task force immediately, and on the night of the 23rd of Feb, they head over to the Mankoba compound. Initially, the plan was to raid the church and apprehend the gunmen, but things quickly devolved into a straight-out gunfight, one that this time, though, the police were ready for. Residents of the area later report that the shooting went on for some 30 minutes before the police managed to fully storm the compound and get their men. In that time, seven members of the church were gunned down, including three of the Montcoba brothers, for whom the church is named. When the shooting is done, ten people are arrested. But now the compound is a crime scene. And the police and later press finally get insight into the workings of this mysterious group how big it had become and what really went on behind the fences and this is where we're starting to get into who these people were besides apparently crazed but motivated shooters after the raid the police remove around a hundred young women and girls from the site many of them underaged some as young as 12, and some with children of their own. Their accommodations in the compound are cramped, tin shacks with multiple mattresses spread over the floor, clothes hanging off wires suspended across the room. They have lived here, like this, pretty much every day since joining or being born into the church, and forbidden from going into school or socialising outside of the compound's bounds as these actions were considered mortal sins. These kind of revelations, uh, for lack of a better word, I regret that one, uh, these findings sparked a media frenzy about N'Kobo's crazed sex cult, I think the media were calling it, and it soon became national knowledge that the church is run by seven brothers, the Mankobas, or as they would have it, seven angels, who have been apparently very busy keeping this host of underage girls as their giant quotation marks here, wives, and just generally extorting money and goods from their deluded and or captive congregation. The Mantgobas, we learn, have become sort of a religious dynasty, the origins of their church start with Sapiwo Matgoba, a self styled pastor who started a church called Angel Ministry in 1986 in Umzumkulu in KwaZulu Natal, or just Natal as it would have been back then. Sapiwo is an enterprising sort who records his lectures and teachings and distributes these to his followers, instructing them to go out and spread the word, recruiting new members. According to some pretty excellent reporting from the Daily Dispatch, Sepiwa was originally in partnership with another patriarch of a church family, a man called Ndomiso Jali. Sepiwa started referring to himself as the New Moses, and together they made a good living fleecing the congregation of whatever they would give them. But it was Ndomiso's land that angel ministry started on, and when the two men almost inevitably fell out over the use of that land and the use of the proceeds from their church, Zipiwo was kicked out. The hostility between these two ended in a fight that Zipiwo killed. The brothers, all grown men by this point, decided to decamp back to Inkorbo, where they had had success early on, and establish a new church, the Seven Angels' Ministry, with their mother, Luvo Mantoba, as figurehead. As part of starting their new church, the brothers told the story they proclaimed that they were on a crusade to fight Lucifer, the fallen angel himself. Except that their version of fighting the devil looked a lot like their father's legacy, of taking whatever of value that their congregants had to offer. To join the church, members were expected to sign over all their worldly wealth, including cars, cash, and properties, given over as gifts to the brothers. As cults go, that's not terribly inventive, I know. In fact, it's pretty textbook. You've got insular community with absolute leaders and who are in it for the power, profit, and we'd learn, sexual exploitation. Now, remember I said to put a pin in the matter of what the police did to look into the church before the massacre? Well, they did, and they didn't take steps. Many people in the Ntkobo community had actually reported the Mankobo ministry to various authorities. They were concerned because people they cared about had quit their jobs, cashed in their pensions, and moved into the space, never to be seen again. Now, a few members, some members, were sometimes sent out to beg or preach, and when people encountered them in the wild, so to speak, they would hear, as Melissa told us, that the children in the compound were being kept from school. In 2016, a team of police and social workers actually removed 21 children from the premises and took them into state care. At the time, they alerted the Commission for the Promotion and Protection of the Rights of Cultural, Religious, and Linguistic Communities. That's a mouthful, I know, but they go by the acronym CRL, and basically, they protect the rights of minority religious and cultural communities which is a pretty important mission in a country as diverse as South Africa. The CRL commission investigated the Seven Angels Church, and this is where things get infuriating, because the CRL actually conducted lengthy interviews with the brothers, including Banele Matroba, the de facto leader and church spokesperson. What he had to say raised a lot of red flags. And honestly, if you get a chance to go and watch that interview, which you can find online, and I will link, please do so, because it's it's a lot. It's very odd. And in short, Benelli claimed that the Manchoba brothers were not human, but rather angels sitting at the right hand of Jesus, sent to earth, as I've explained, to hunt Lucifer, So far, so predictable, right? Except that Barnele goes on to explain that Lucifer had a hand in the development of the South African constitution, and he had his claws in the education system. This made those two things completely intolerable for the Magorba ministry. Most bizarrely, he casually mentions their belief that Nelson Mandela himself had helped Satan to achieve this influence it also seems that some of the more progressive elements of our constitution were what really pained the seven angels' ministry. The fact that under South African law, gay women and men can marry, for example, or, ironically, the fact that the constitution makes provision for religious freedoms for all belief systems, a lot of which Bonello dismissed out of hand as, quote, witchcraft. Naturally, he implied, these matters left the seven angels no choice but to stop all of the children in their group from attending school and to isolate their members as much as possible, freeing them and protecting them from the tendrils of moral corruption that were basically everywhere. Now, you probably think I'm going to tell you that the CRL committee slept on this information, but they didn't the chairperson who was present at the interviews immediately reached out to Parliament, asking for an amendment to her mandate that would allow her to close the church down. It was, in her opinion, a ticking time bomb. She even predicted that it was only a matter of them running out of money before everything would implode. Despite these dire warnings, the Parliamentary Committee ruled they couldn't give the CRL, that kind of power, and then they proceeded to do, well, absolutely bugger all else about this very dangerous cult that their attention had been drawn to, because, you know, these things often work themselves out. So you can see that there had been some action, but mostly at a local police level, which may be why, or at least I'm surmising that that's why the police had become the targets when, forgive the pun, all hell broke loose in February 2018. Oh, incidentally, there was perhaps another precursor to that deadly night, something that's only been linked after the fact. Again, I have the in-depth reporting of the Daily Dispatch and specifically Bungani Fuzile to thank for this one. You see, two weeks before the shootouts in Ndkobo, Ndumiso Jali and his wife, Norma India Jali, were shot and murdered in their church in New Clydesdale, Nzumkulu. And it was, Bungani writes, the Mantgoba brothers who showed up to demand the body of their father's partner-turned-nemesis. With all of these bits of information coming together, we start to see a picture emerging of what life was probably like in the compound around then. There was this growing congregation. They were literally breeding more members. But at the same time, they had a problem of dwindling recruits who are used to provide new money because no one in the compound works or goes outside. And those recruits are dwindling especially because the word got around that you had to give up all of your wealth to join. And at the driver's wheel of this mess were these narcissistic con men, operating a little bit like the mob, convinced of their superiority, fuelled by bigotry, resentful of the local police, entitled and honestly emboldened by the state's lack of action against them they started to target their enemies. If we think that they believed their own hype or law, maybe they saw Ndmiso Jali and the police as agents of evil who stood in their way. If you take a more cynical view, as I think we all know I do, I think that they saw these victims as convenient, a source of money, guns and revenge. And that is what I believe led directly to the deaths in February 2018. As I mentioned earlier, three of the people shot dead by police during the raid were Mantgoba brothers. Two more brothers were among those arrested, including Banele and Putumile. Banele was charged with rape, sexual grooming and sexual abuse. Putumile was charged possessing an unlicensed firearm neither of them could be implicated directly in the police murders of the 21st of Feb and Banele and his cohort went so far as to blame the whole thing on Tandazile Mantgoba who conveniently had been shot dead in the police raid along with Kolisa and Pelile Mantgoba convenient only in that the scapegoat could not be interrogated after the fact The shooting was over, but the mess left behind is still being unraveled. When they were threatened and attacked, this little village police force and its backup had responded with force, not precision, so prosecuting this case has been a nightmare. Somehow, the surviving brothers, four of them, all ended up essentially scot-free. In Benelli's case, This was despite the fact that he admitted to having what he called a wife in the compound who would have been just 15 years old when they married and who was the mother to his two-year-old child. Somehow, both this and the fact that he headed up a cult where multiple young women and girls were forcibly kept was not enough for the National Prosecuting Authority to proceed with the case against him. Some 14 women and children were questioned regarding their treatment at the compound, with police and social workers believing that they had been raped and molested. It seems that all women in the compound were considered sexually available to the brothers. The children born into the cult were never registered with the state, so they were without ID numbers or birth certificates. The majority of the women declined to provide information to the prosecutors, to the police, and many requested to be returned to the church. The Monskopa family have largely dodged legal consequences, though the church compound itself has been demolished and the mountain graffiti removed. Their mother is still proclaiming the innocence of her dead sons in the press, but we will never have an opportunity to really test that in a court of law. So instead of the leaders, the blame for the 2018 events, at least in the legal sense, is sitting squarely on the shoulders of five other church members, all arrested on the night of the shootout, all still working their way through the legal system three long years later. Well, almost four years later. They are Andani, sometimes called Andile Montko, Sipo Sumizi Trefu, Kwannele Ndloanai, Sipo Sikle and Pumzile Ndlatwa. Brother Putumile Mantgoba was convicted of defeating the ends of justice and the illegal possession of one of the firearms stolen from the police station, but the multiple murder cases have been delayed repeatedly and all of the accused except Putumile have turned down legal representation which has really complicated matters, because the accused have tied the courts up with a trial within a trial for literal years, arguing that their confessions of guilt are not actually admissible because they claim that the police tortured the admissions out of them. One claims he was beaten to the point of blacking out and soiling himself, suffocated with an inner tube of a tyre and even forced to drink urine, Accusations being levelled at the same police officers that participated in the arrest and subsequent questioning of the Mankoba church members. In 2020, Mtata judge Robert Griffiths, the presiding judge in this case, implored the police to use, quote, modern technology, like voice and video recording, during investigation and interrogation, saying that this would have helped both the SAP's and the court, and save time in court proceedings by avoiding this whole case-within-a-case situation. No shit. Look, if you're a South African, you probably know how poorly equipped the police can be with their paper files and handwritten documents, and that's in the bigger cities, like Cape Town and Johannesburg. So we can only imagine the state of investigations in underserved, understaffed, rural stations. Especially when a shit show like this lands on them. So, yes, we despair, but we are not surprised that in the 2020s, a judge has to remind the cops to record their damn proceedings. You feel for the cops, but you also want to shake them, or at least I do. I know that they lost colleagues and friends, but I also wouldn't be surprised if they had responded without the necessary care and restraint. The upshot of all of this mess is that in 2022, the families that lost loved ones in the Entropo community are still waiting for justice. And we know so little about the victims, about what actually went down, about the investigation, that I don't know how that justice will ever be served. But I can tell you their names. So, those killed were Warrant Officer Zuko Mbini, Constable Zuko Mcheku, Constable Nkosipendule Pongko, Constable Siboseni Sandlana, and Constable Kuchle Metete. The brave soldier who ran towards the sound of gunfire was Freddy Mpandeni. Four years on, this case is still a mess and there are so many unknowns and it's very frustrating i don't know that these victims will ever see the justice they deserve and that's i guess why you've sat through a 40 minute rant from me um but i'm wrapping up so to lighten our spirits after all of that i thought i'd give the last word back to millie i asked her what she wished to tell you or anyone else about this little village with a bad reputation that she loves so much.
1: <laughs> I wish we had less crime, <laughs> and I also wish that there was more um, growth and more opportunity. Because I feel like it's a, it's it's a great town. It's it's got lots of people that have done amazing things. It's amazing thing that's got a beautiful history, and it's got great nature and hills and mountains and things for people to explore. It's just that it's so tainted with all the. What I told you about the place of mm. thieves for when we were children, which has just perpetuated itself over and over and over the years. And whatever good things does come, does come from anymore, it's like it's always marred by mm. uh, all the bad and all the ugly and all the thieving and everything. So I just wish that we could change the narrative a little bit. And I do try with my folks and mm. stuff, but it's 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 a little, mm. it doesn't go a long way. Mm.